Years ago, a man was accused of a serious crime. The prosecution presented three witnesses, each of whom saw the man commit the crime. The defense then presented three witnesses, none of whom had seen its commission. The simple jury was confused. Based on the number of witnesses, the evidence seemed to the jury equally divided. The man was acquitted. It was irrelevant, of course, that untold millions had never seen the crime. There needed to be only one witness. In the genius of the gospel plan, there ultimately only has to be one witness, but that witness must be you. The testimony of others may initiate and nourish the desire for faith and testimony, but eventually every individual must find out for himself. None can permanently endure on borrowed light. The restored gospel is not truer today than when a solitary boy walked out of the sacred grove in 1820. Truth has never been dependent on the number who embrace it. When Joseph left the grove, there was only one man on earth who knew the truth about God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. It is necessary, however, that each find out for himself and carry that burning testimony into the next life. When the 23-year-old Hebrew J. Grant was installed as president of the Tuwila Stake, he told the saints he believed the gospel was true. President Joseph F. Smith, a counselor in the First Presidency, inquired, Heber, you said you believe the gospel with all your heart, but you did not bear your testimony that you know it is true. Don't you absolutely know that this gospel is true? Heber answered, I do not. Joseph S. Smith then turned to John Taylor, the president of the Church, and said, I am in favor of undoing this afternoon what we did this morning. I do not think that any man should preside over a stake who has not a perfect and abiding knowledge of the divinity of this work. President Taylor replied, Joseph, Joseph, Joseph. Heber knows it just as well as you do. The only thing that he does not know is that he knows it. Within a few weeks, that testimony was realized, and young Heber J. Grant shed tears of gratitude for the perfect, abiding, and absolute testimony that came into his life. It is a grand thing to know, and to know that you know, and that the light has not been borrowed from another. Years ago, I presided over a mission headquartered in the Midwest. One day, with a handful of our missionaries, I spoke with an esteemed representative of another Christian faith. This gentle soul spoke of his own religion's history and doctrine, eventually repeating the familiar words, By grace ye are saved. Every man and woman must exercise faith in Christ in order to become a saved being. Among those present was a new missionary. He was altogether unfamiliar with other religions. He had to ask the question, But, sir, what happens to the little baby who dies before he's old enough to understand and exercise faith in Christ? The learned man bowed his head, looked at the floor, and said, There ought to be an exception. 
There ought to be a loophole. There ought to be a way. But there isn't. The missionary looked at me and with tears in his eyes said, Goodness, President, we do have the truth, don't we? The moment of testimony realization when you know that you know is sweet and sublime. That testimony, if nurtured, will rest upon you as a mantle. When we see light, we are engulfed by it. Lights of understanding turn on within. I once conversed with a fine young man who was not of our faith, although we attended most of our worship services for more than a year. I asked why he had not joined the Church. He replied, Because I do not know whether it is true. I think it may well be true. But I cannot stand and testify as you do. I actually know it is true. I inquired, Have you read the Book of Mormon? He answered that he had read in the book. I asked whether he prayed about the book. He answered, I've mentioned it in my prayers. I told my friend that as long as he casually read and prayed, he never would find out worlds without end. But when he set aside a period for fasting and pleading, the truth would be burned into his heart, and he would know that he knew. He said nothing more to me, but told his wife the next morning that he would be fasting. Following Saturday, he was baptized. If you want to know that you know that you know, a price must be paid, and you alone must pay that price. There are proxies for ordinances, but none for the acquisition of a testimony. Alma spoke of his conversion in these beautiful words, I have fasted and prayed many days that I might know these things of myself. And now I do know of myself that they are true. For the Lord God hath made them manifest unto me. When a testimony has been realized, there is a burning urge on the part of the possessor to bear that testimony to others. When Brigham left the waters of baptism, he said, The Spirit of the Lord was upon me, and I felt as though my bones would consume within me unless I spoke to the people. The first discourse I ever delivered occupied over an hour. I opened my mouth, and the Lord filled it. As a fire will not burn except the flame be revealed, a testimony cannot abide except it be expressed. Brigham Young later said of Orson Pratt, If Brother Orson were chopped up in inch pieces, each piece would cry out, Mormonism is true. Father Lehi eulogized his noble son Nephi in these words, But behold, it was not he, but it was the Spirit of the Lord which was in him, which opened his mouth to utterance that he could not shut it. The opportunity and responsibility for testimony bearing exists first in the family setting. Our children should be able to remember the light in our eyes, the ring of our testimonies in their ears and the feeling in their hearts as we bear witness to our most precious audience that Jesus was truly God's own Son and Joseph was His prophet. Our posterity must know that we know because we oft tell them. Early Church leaders paid a great price to establish this dispensation. Perhaps we will meet them in the next life and listen to the witness. When we are called upon to testify, what will we say? There will be spiritual infants, 
and spiritual giants in the next life. Eternity is a long time to live without light, especially if our spouses and our descendants also live in darkness because there was no light within us, and others, therefore, could not light their lamps. We should be on our knees every morning and night, pleading with the Lord that we never lose our faith, our testimony, or our virtue. There only has to be one witness, but it must be yourself. I have a testimony, and it urges to be expressed. I bear witness that the power of the living God is in this Church. I know what I know, and my witness is true. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My beloved brethren and sisters, we now conclude a great conference. We've been edified, uplifted. We've been inspired and lifted to a higher appreciation of this wonderful gospel. The music, the spoken word, and the prayers have all been magnificent. We now return to our homes. If we are driving, let us be careful. Let no tragedy mark the experience we have enjoyed. All of the proceedings of this conference will appear in subsequent issues of the Ensign and Leahona. We encourage you to read again the talks in your family home evenings and discuss them together as families. They are the products of much prayer and meditation and are well worthy of careful consideration. Now the conference is adjourned for six months. We look forward to seeing you again next April. I'm 97, but I hope I'm going to make it. <laughs> May the blessings of heaven attend you in the meantime is our humble and sincere prayer in the name of our Redeemer, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Most of us have more things expected of us than we can possibly do. As breadwinners, as parents, as church workers and members, we face many choices on what we will do with our time and other resources. We should begin by recognizing the reality that just because something is good is not a sufficient reason for doing it. The number of good things we can do far exceeds the time available to accomplish them. Some things are better than good, and these are the things that should command priority attention in our lives. Jesus taught this principle in the home of Martha. While she was cumbered about much serving, her sister Mary sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. When Martha complained that her sister had left her to serve alone, Jesus commended Martha for what she was doing, but taught her that one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part which shall not be taken away from her. 
It was praiseworthy for Martha to be careful and troubled about many things, but learning the gospel from the master teacher was more needful. The scriptures contain other teachings that some things are more blessed than others. A childhood experience introduced me to the idea that some choices are good, but others are better. I lived for two years on a farm. We rarely went to town. Our Christmas shopping was done in the Sears Roebuck catalog. I spent hours poring over its pages. For the rural families of that day, catalog pages were like the shopping mall or the internet of our time. Something about some displays of merchandise in the catalog fixed itself in my mind. There were three degrees of quality, good, better, and best. For example, some men's shoes were labeled good, $1.84, some better, $2.98, and some best, $3.45. As we consider various choices, we should remember that it is not enough that something is good. Other choices are better, and still others are best. Even though a particular choice is more costly, its far greater value may make it the best choice of all. Consider how we use our time in the choices we make in viewing television, playing video games, surfing the internet, or reading books or magazines. Of course it is good to view wholesome entertainment or to obtain interesting information. But not everything of that sort is worth the portion of our life we give to obtain it. Some things are better, and others are best. When the Lord told us to seek learning, he said, Seek ye out of the best books, words of wisdom. Some of our most important choices concern family activities. Many breadwinners worry that their occupations leave too little time for their families. There is no easy formula for that contest of priorities. However, I've never known of a man who looked back on his working life and said, I just didn't spend enough time with my job. In choosing how we spend time as a family, we should be careful not to exhaust our available time on things that are merely good and leave little time for that which is better or best. A friend took his young family on a series of summer vacation trips, including visits to memorable historic sites. At the end of the summer, he asked his teenage son which of these good summer activities he enjoyed most. The father learned from the reply, and so did all of us he told of it. The thing I liked best this summer, the boy replied, was the night you and I laid on the lawn and looked at the stars and talked. Super-family activities may be good for children, but they are not always better than one-on-one time with a loving parent. The amount of children and parent time absorbed in the good activities of private lessons, team sports, and other school and club activities also needs to be carefully regulated. Otherwise, children will be overscheduled and parents will be frazzled and frustrated. Parents should act to preserve time for family prayer, family scripture study, family home evening, 
and the other precious togetherness and individual one-on-one time that binds a family together and fixes children's values on things of eternal worth. Parents should teach gospel priorities through what they do with their children. Family experts have warned against what they call the overscheduling of children. In the last generation, children are far busier and families spend far less time together. Among many measures of this disturbing trend are the reports that structured sports time has doubled, but children's free time has declined by 12 hours per week, and unstructured outdoor activities have fallen by 50%. The number of those who report that their whole family usually eats dinner together has declined 33%. This is most concerning because the time a family spends together eating meals at home is the strongest predictor of children's academic achievement and psychological adjustment. Family mealtimes have also been shown to be a strong bulwark against children's smoking, drinking, or using drugs. There is inspired wisdom in this advice to parents. What your children really want for dinner is you. (laughs) President Gordon B. Hinckley has pleaded that we work at our responsibility as parents as if everything in life counted on it because, in fact, everything in life does count on it. He continued, I ask you men particularly to pause and take stock of yourselves as husbands and fathers and heads of households. Pray for guidance, for help, for direction, and then follow the whisperings of the Spirit to guide you in the most serious of all responsibilities, for the consequences of your leadership in your home will be eternal and everlasting. The First Presidency has called on parents to devote their best efforts to teaching and rearing their children in gospel principles. The home is the basis of a righteous life, and no other instrumentality can take its place in this God-given responsibility. The First Presidency has declared that, quote, however worthy and appropriate other demands or activities may be, they must not be permitted to displace the divinely appointed duties that only parents and families can adequately perform." End of quote. Church leaders should be aware that church meetings and activities can become too complex and burdensome if a ward or stake tries to have the membership do everything that is good and possible in our numerous church programs. Priorities are needed there also. Members of the Quorum of the Twelve have stressed the importance of exercising inspired judgment in Church programs and activities. Elder L. Tom Perry taught this principle in our first worldwide leadership training meeting in 2003. Counseling these same leaders in 2005, Elder Richard Scott said, "...adjust your activities to be consistent with your local conditions and resources. Make sure that the essential needs are met." but do not go overboard in creating so many good things to do that the essential ones are not accomplished. Remember, don't magnify the work to be done, simplify it." In General Conference last year, 
Elder M. Russell Ballard warned against the deterioration of family relationships that can result when we spend excessive time on ineffective activities that yield little spiritual sustenance. He cautioned against complicating our church service, quote, with needless frills and embellishments that occupy too much time, cost too much money, and sap too much energy. The instruction to magnify our callings is not a command to embellish and complicate them. To innovate does not necessarily mean to expand. Very often it means to simplify. What is most important in our Church responsibilities, he said, is not the statistics that are reported or the meetings that are held, but whether or not individual people, ministered to one at a time, just as the Savior did, have been lifted and encouraged and ultimately changed." End of quote. Stake presidencies and bishoprics need to exercise their authority to weed out the excessive and ineffective busyness that is sometimes required of the members of their stakes or wards. Church programs should focus on what is best, most effective, in achieving their assigned purposes without unduly infringing on the time families need for their divinely appointed duties. But here is a caution for families. Suppose Church leaders reduce the time required by Church meetings and activities in order to increase the time available for families to be together. This will not achieve its intended purpose unless individual family members, especially parents, vigorously act to increase family togetherness and one-on-one -on -one time. Team sports and technology toys like video games and the Internet are already winning away the time of our children and youth. Surfing the Internet is not better than serving the Lord or strengthening the family. Some young men and young women are skipping church youth activities or cutting family time in order to participate in soccer leagues or to pursue various entertainments. Some young people are amusing themselves to death, spiritual death. Some uses of individual and family time are better and others are best. We have to forego some good things in order to choose others that are better or best because they develop faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and strengthen our families. Here are some other illustrations of good, better, and best. It is good to belong to our Father in Heaven's true Church, to keep all of His commandments, and to fulfill all of our duties. But if this is to qualify as best, it should be done with love and without arrogance. We should, as we sing in a great hymn, crown our good with brotherhood, showing love and concern for all whom our lives affect. To our hundreds of thousands of home teachers and visiting teachers, I suggest that it is good to visit our assigned families. It is better to have a brief visit in which we teach doctrine and principle, but it is best of all to make a difference in the lives of some of those we visit. That same challenge applies to the many meetings we hold. Good to hold a meeting, better to teach a principle, but best to actually improve lives as a result of the meeting. As we approach 2008 and a new course of study in our Melchizedek Priesthood Quorums and Relief Societies, 
I renew our caution about how we use the teachings of presidents of the Church. Many years of inspired work have produced our 2008 volume of the teachings of Joseph Smith, the founding prophet of this dispensation. This is a landmark among Church books. In the past, some teachers have given a chapter of teachings no more than a brief mention and then substituted a lesson of their own choice. It may have been a good lesson, but that is not an acceptable practice. A gospel teacher is called to teach the subject specified from the inspired materials provided. The best thing a teacher can do with teachings of Joseph Smith is to select and quote from the words of the prophet on principles specially suited to the needs of class members and then direct a class discussion on how to apply those principles in the circumstances of their lives. I testify of our Heavenly Father, whose children we are, and whose plan is designed to qualify us for eternal life, the greatest of all the gifts of God. I testify of Jesus Christ, whose Atonement makes it possible. And I testify that we are led by prophets, our President Gordon B. Hinckley and his counselors. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. When speaking of his mother, President David O. McKay quoted Abraham Lincoln, saying, All that I am or hope to be, I owe to my angel mother. These words uh, well explain my feelings about my own mother. Viola Jean Goetz Snow, Jeannie to all who knew her, was born in 1929 and died shortly after her 60th birthday in 1989. She taught me and she encouraged me, and she truly convinced me I could accomplish anything I wanted. She also disciplined me. As my own sons say now of their mother, she was the travel agent for guilt trips. (laughs) Mom was a wonderful mother, a great role model, and scarcely a day passes I do not think of her and miss her. A few years before she passed away, she was diagnosed with cancer, a disease she fought with great courage. As a family, we learned, strangely enough, that cancer is a disease of love. It provides opportunities to mend fences, say goodbyes, and express love. A few weeks before my mother's death, we were visiting in the family room of my boyhood home. Mom had fine taste and liked nice things. She also longed to travel but our family lived on a modest budget, and these dreams were not quite realized. Knowing this, I asked her if she had any regrets. I fully expected to hear she had always wanted a larger, more beautiful home, or perhaps an expression of sadness and disappointment over never having traveled. She pondered my question for a few moments and replied simply, I wish I had served more. I was shocked at her response. My mother had always accepted Church callings. She served as a Ward Relief Society president, Sunday school teacher, visiting teacher, and in the primary. As children, we were always delivering casseroles, jam, and bottled fruit to neighbors and members of the ward. When I reminded her of all this, she was undeterred. I could have done more, was all she said. Now, my mother had lived an exemplary and full life. She was loved by family and friends. She had accomplished much in a life that was often hard and which was cut short by disease and sickness. 
In spite of all of this, her greatest regret was she had not given enough service. Now, I have no doubt my mother's earthly sacrifice has been accepted by the Lord and that she has been welcomed by Him. But why was it foremost in her mind just days before her passing? What is service and why is it so important in the gospel of Jesus Christ? First, we are commanded to serve one another. The first commandment is to love God, and the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. We demonstrate our love when we help and serve each other. President Gordon B. Hinckley has said, No man can be a true Latter-day Saint who is unneighborly, who does not reach out to assist and help others. It is inherent in the very nature of the gospel that we do so. My brothers and sisters, we cannot live unto ourselves. The Savior taught His disciples this important principle in Matthew. Lord, when saw we Thee and hungered and fed Thee, or thirsty and gave Thee drink? When saw we Thee a stranger and took Thee in, or naked and clothed Thee? Or when saw we Thee sick or in prison and came unto Thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. This service is to be given unselfishly with no thought of personal gain or reward, and it is to be given as needed, not when convenient. Opportunity to serve may not always seem obvious, as it is human nature to worry about our own wants and needs. We must resist such tendencies and look for opportunities to serve. When we visit with those who are suffering from sickness, loss of loved ones, or other heartbreak, it is not enough to simply say, Call if there is anything I can do. Rather, look for ways to bless the lives of others through seemingly simple acts of service. It is better to do even little th- things of little consequence than to do nothing at all. Secondly, we have an obligation as members of the Church to accept callings to serve in building the kingdom of God on earth. As we serve in our various callings, we bless the lives of others. In missionary work, lives are changed as people learn of the gospel of Jesus Christ and receive a testimony of its truth. By the sacred work in the temple, we bless the lives of those who have gone on before us. In gospel service, we have the privilege to teach others, to strengthen the youth, and to bless the lives of the little children as they learn the simple truths of the gospel. In Church service, we learn to give of ourselves and to help others. President Spencer W. Kimball, a great example of service, said, God does notice us, and He watches over us, but it is usually through another mortal that He meets our needs. Therefore, it is vital that we serve each other in the kingdom. The responsibility of service in the Church, however, does not relieve us of our responsibility to serve our families and our neighbors. President Kimball went on to warn, None of us should become so busy in our formal Church assignments that there is no room left for quiet Christian service to our neighbors. Finally, we have a responsibility to render service in our communities. We should work to improve our neighborhoods, our schools, our cities, and our towns. 
I commend those in our midst who, regardless of their political persuasion, work within our local, state, and national governments to improve our lives. Likewise, I commend those who volunteer their time and resources to support worthy community and charitable causes, which bless the lives of others and makes the world a better place. My grandfather taught me at an early age the public service we render is the rent we pay for our place on earth. Service requires unselfishness, sharing, and giving. My wife and I learned a valuable lesson during our time of service in Africa. We were assigned to a district conference in Jinja, Uganda. Early Saturday morning, before our meetings began, we took the opportunity to tour a new chapel in the area. As we arrived at the building, we were greeted by a young boy of three to four years of age. He had come to the church grounds to see what was going on. Struck by his broad smile, Sister Snow reached in her purse and handed him a wrapped piece of hard butterscotch candy. He was delighted. We spent a few minutes touring the chapel before returning outside. We were met by more than a dozen smiling children who each wanted to meet the new neighborhood candy lady. Phyllis was heartbroken as she had given the boy her last piece of candy. She disappointedly gestured to the children there was no more. The small boy who initially greeted us then handed the candy back to Sister Snow, gesturing for her to unwrap it. With a heavy heart, Phyllis did so, fully expecting the boy to pop the butterscotch candy into his mouth in full view of his envious friends. Instead, to our great surprise, he went to each of his friends who stuck out their tongues and received one delicious lick of the butterscotch candy. (laughs) The young boy continued around the circle, occasionally taking his own lick until the candy was gone. Now, one can argue the lack of sanitation with this gesture of sharing. But no one can dispute the example set by this young boy. Unselfishness, sharing, and giving are essential to service, and this child learned that lesson well. It is my hope and prayer we can all do more in giving service. If we fail to serve, we fail to receive the fullness of the privileges and blessings of the restored gospel. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.